time ago, an American airplane dropped one bomb on Hiroshima. Ich bin ein Mr. Gorbachev, tear down this. American people, I think, is good people. They are. They have not to charge with the guilty of all the lies. Welcome back. This is the Cold War podcast, Ray. Uh, just yes. so you got the right notes in front of you. How are you today, my minute buddy? <laughs> I saw. I, am, I saw. A, yeah. I saw something called micro wrestling. You ever heard of micro wrestling? Yeah, I, I'm the champion. Four years running. Yeah, yeah I what, was. What, what, <laughs> What is it? Micro wrestling is basically like WWE wrestling, but with uh, little people. Uh, and uh, yeah, I was watching it, thinking you've got a whole career option here. If the podcasting <laughs> thing, if you ever, it's my backup. If you, ever, if you ever yeah. get tired of podcasting, yeah. micro wrestling, go and check out micro wrestling. Everyone, go to YouTube, look up micro wrestling. Uh-huh. Totally, totally for you. You, you. you, you do okay, I think. Well, I'm, I'm still on the uh, steroids and five thousand calories a day. Uh, I'm, I'm still bulking up uh, for yeah. that. Uh, I'll let you know yeah. when I'm ready. Okay. What would your What would your wrestling name be oh, if you were to oh, get become a micro wrestler? Oh, probably something non sexy like "Please don't hurt me." I don't know. I haven't really had a chance to think about. That's what uh, marketing's for. <laughs> right, I'll get Barry and Stan on the job. There we uh, go. T- <laughs> we haven't uh, let, let's get on with the show. We haven't yes. talked much about uh Taiwan on the show. Uh so that's what we're going to do today and joining us to talk about it is James Sean. Sean or Sean, James? Sean. Sean. Okay, James Sean. Yes. Um <laughs> James uh is a teacher, not British apparently, uh South African. Who yes. has lived and worked in Taiwan for over a decade? Is that true, yeah, it's James? Just it's going eleven and a half years now. Nice, lovely. He's recently started a podcast about the history of Taiwan. TaiwanThroughTime.com. Check it out, folks. Uh, so, welcome to our little show, James. Uh, tell us oh. a little bit about yourself and how you ended up in Taiwan and what you do for a crust. Oh, well, thank you. Good morning, Cam, and good evening, Ray. Um, I basically came here because, uh, well, the South African economy was failing me somewhat. I I know I don't Mm -hmm. sound like a typical South African in terms of what the world thinks we are, but we do have 11 official languages and umpteen ethnicities. So, yes, some of us do sound a bit more like we're English, but we're all wild colonial boys, I guess. Um, yeah, I, I had a friend actually at school with me at high school who was Taiwanese. And when we finished school, uh, we went to different universities, but we stayed in contact. And then despite being in South Africa for nine years or something, he wasn't allowed to stay after finishing school. So he had to come back to Taiwan Mm. and I was battling to get a job that actually paid me anything. And he invited me to come visit for a while. So I thought I'd come and work for a year or two, and I'm still here. <laughs> still trying to save up enough money to leave? I, that's sad. That's sad. Yeah, yeah, it is kind of sad. Um, <laughs> you know, teaching doesn't pay terribly well, but it pays oh, better than you. it did back home. Right. And I've, I've been independent for the first time in my life, which I couldn't have been if I'd stayed at home. I would have scraped a living by. 
uh, which just tells well, you a bit about the economy I'm, I'm, at the moment. Yeah. I'm pleased to tell you that your money worries are over now that you've become a podcaster. <laughs> just, uh, just you made me choke you know, on my bourbon. <laughs> just right now, get a big get get a bigger house so you have somewhere to put all the cash when they right, roll it. They back right. the truck up to your house and just start pouring cash in. What kind of what kind of teaching do you do there, James? Uh, well, I'm qualified as an English and history teacher, but as I'm in Taiwan, most of my teaching ends up being English because they want English teachers here. The uh, the current president Tsai Ing-wen has uh, actually embarked upon this goal to try make the whole island bilingual or mostly bilingual by 2030. Which is a, a bit ambitious, yeah. but they need right. English teachers for that. Mm-hmm. Ambition, right? That. Can I just say real quick for the listeners? I've listened to James uh, the few episodes that he's got on his um, podcast so far, and very well done. Great content, great delivery, James. I'm uh, I'm jealous that I'm not South African with the cool <laughs> voice and the accent. Maybe if I fake it, but anyway, I just want to let everybody know I enjoyed it very much uh, listening oh, to it. Well, thank you for that. I, I actually worry that I sound a bit too stiff and formal, like some sort of aged professor. But, Isn't uh, that what you're supposed to? No, I'm just joking. No, no. It well, have you, very have smooth. you, yeah, have you listened to expert. Ray's World War II podcast? It's basically <laughs> his whole oh, shtick is, hello, ladies and gentlemen, this is... Ray Harris, welcome are to you asl- World War Two. Are you asleep yet? No? Isn't that a nature <laughs> documentary? <laughs> yes, it's basically his take yeah. on that. Yeah, yeah. You're not yeah. Anyway, yeah. Anyway, anyway. So that's a bit about you. Uh, how old are you? I'm going on thirty-seven now. Well, I will be oh, thirty-seven yeah. this year. Right. All right. Thirty-seven. And you've been there uh, eleven years, so since your uh, mid mid twenties. Yeah, nice, fantastic. Yeah, and do you like it? You like it there? I'm assuming you do, seeing as you're still there. It's not just the money that's keeping you there. You like living in Taiwan. <laughs> well, I mean, there, there are some great things about Taiwan. It is extremely safe. It is quite affordable. I mean, I, I've seen children playing in the park at one o'clock in the morning, and they're perfectly what? safe. Yeah. It, Not, no. As a crazy. South African, this blows my mind yeah. because, yes. I mean. As an American, a, yeah. A lot of Chinese culture is about saving face. And so when crimes happen, they tend to be through fraud and money laundering and that kind of nonsense. Very seldom does someone come up to you and try and steal from you. Right. Because then you can recognize their face and they could be shamed for it later. So it mm-hmm. tends to be a very... I mean, I don't know if that's the only reason. It might also to do with the culture and the history and blah, blah, blah. But it's just incredibly safe. Nice. And the irony now, of that, of course, is that Taiwan was stolen from China by the Kuomintang. <laughs> so, you know, we'll, we'll get to that. It's safe <laughs> now. Go on. Yeah. Well, we see yeah. in the Western world, we focus on ourselves. We've got, you know, we had the century of the self. So when right. we talk yes. to each other, we're all talking about how to be kind and helpful and stuff to other people. Whereas mm-hmm. in a, a Chinese civilization, the system is built up to cater to the people. So people mm. think that's already taken care of, so they focus on themselves. Which is mm-hmm. why when Chinese people go on, you know, on holiday and these tour groups to different countries, people see them and feel they come across as rude because they're focusing on what they can get. But it's because they already think the people are taken care of. Hmm. Oh, okay. That makes sense. Okay. At least that, that's the, that's the way I see that. it. 
I see right. American tourists as rude. I've never, no, I've never thought that Chinese tourists were rude. But well, anyway. apparently, in one of your interviews, I think back with Augustus, you were chatting with someone who said something about how, yes, a lot of people don't like American tourists, but the Chinese have sort of overtaken them as being seen as the most obnoxious. Really? I thought, not, I thought never, Australians were yeah. at the top of the list, then oh, Americans. They should be. Then they should be. I think that's Justin Bali. British. Yeah. Oh, <laughs> gotcha. Oh, we're no. not number one at anything. I've Go seen ahead. very loud, annoying Australian tourists right across Europe too. Yeah. Anyway, yeah. let's right. um, let's. So the the topic of this podcast, for my mind, is I really when I got into this, I really wanted to understand a little bit about how Taiwan came to be where it is today in terms of um, the geopolitical view. Mm-hmm. Uh, what what the what the facts are about how the KMT ended up there uh, and what the International view of Taiwan is today what China's view is, uh, what the Taiwanese view of Taiwan is, and, and their view of China is um, the legal the legal position. Uh, so, I guess over the next hour or two, ladies and gentlemen at home listening to this, Ray, James, and I, but mostly James, is going to uh, articulate. We're going to we're going <laughs> to drill down and try and work this out. Now, I know we're in the middle of the Korean War. And this is sort of a might, might be a bit of a tangent. And as we just said to James offline, we 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 eat tangents for breakfast. We live in the tangent, as you all well tangent know, when you, if you listen to our shows. Yeah. But um, you know, the 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 the, the uh, story of Taiwan is intricately involved with mm. the Korean War story. Uh, it, mm. it falls right in the middle of it. They're they're, they're closely related, so. Uh, it is, in fact, uh, relevant to our Korean War uh, miniseries that we're doing at the moment. So the question of ownership of Taiwan uh, obviously continues today uh, up until the headlines were full of uh, Russia's about to invade Ukraine. Right. The uh, dominant media narrative for a large part of the last year or two has been China's about to invade Taiwan. Um, and before that, it was Russia's going to invade Ukraine, and before that, it was uh, China's going to invade <laughs> Taiwan, and you know, it's sort of uh, you know they, they, they yeah they have it. <laughs> the, the large Western media outlets uh, have a calendar up on their wall. If you've ever been yeah, in one of their yes. newsrooms, and it's like okay, right. like most of us have the calendar when when we have to go to daylight savings times and change our clock back. They have. What narrative are we? Oh, it's the time <laughs> yeah, for the Russia's going to invade Ukraine right. narrative. Uh, well, let's let's uh, uh, pause the China's going to invade Taiwan narrative. Yeah. Um, obviously, Taiwan was known in the West as Formosa until after mm-hmm. World War Two. Where does the name yeah. Formosa come from, James? Well, we know that it comes from uh, Portuguese, but the actual story of where it comes from is a bit wishy-washy. Um, mm. I, I haven't got the names with me at the moment. I wasn't expecting to chat about that. Uh, but there were... Aha! A- got you already! <laughs> I know. Caught out. You, this is, now you know how Ray feels. <laughs> this is how Ray feels every week. <laughs> every well, week! The first European group to really get into the Middle East and to connect, uh, set up a lot of trading um, areas was with the Spanish. Mm-hmm. And Obviously, the rest of Europe wanted to get in there, but didn't know all the right currents and trade routes. And I mean, it's very difficult 
finding the right places and knowing which places are safe to sail and not. Right. And a Dutchman, I forget his name offhand, traveled with the Spanish. I don't know if he pretended to be Spanish or if he just worked for them. And he gathered all this knowledge and then went back to Europe and wrote a book. And oh. he sold that book to so many people in different countries, translated into about six languages. And then suddenly all the exclusive trade routes that were known only to the Spanish suddenly were open to all of Europe. And you oh, had the English getting in there and the Dutch getting in there and the um, Portuguese getting in there. Right. But what happened is someone was sailing and there've been like three different accounts of who it was because it was written up in three different textbooks by different people. Mm. Someone sailing past Taiwan looked at it and went, oh, Ilar Formosa. And Ilar is isle and Formosa is beautiful. So the beautiful island. Mm. And regardless of who actually said it, it was the Dutchman in his writing that made it popular. And so Europe, through his writings, adopted the name for the island. Okay. Beautiful. Where's the name Taiwan, which is used now, it's a more modern name, is also a much older name that a lot of the indigenous people used prior. So Uh, Taiwan is an old name and a new name, where some still prefer Formosa from the European front. So if we look at Taiwan on a map, it's obviously quite close to China. Um, A little bit further away from mainland Japan, but very close to Yonaguni or Yonaguni, the westernmost Japanese island. Mm. But Taiwan ended up as a Dutch colony, got annexed by China in 1683, then ceded to Japan in 1895 as the result of the 1895 Treaty of Shimonoseki following the Sino-Japanese War. Yeah. And then is a basically a Japanese colony for uh, what, 50 years. the next 50-odd years until yeah. the yeah. end of World War II when the Cairo Declaration, 1943, established that it would be handed over to China should Japan surrender. Right. Yeah. Now, a fun thing about the Cairo uh, Declaration was that Stalin was not allowed to be there. At the <laughs> at the time, uh, right. Russia and Japan had a, uh, what is it called? a non-aggression treaty. Mm-hmm. So Stalin being present at the meeting of deciding what would happen to Japan would be seen as an aggressive act. So he had to be left out and the rest met up. And then right. later, without Chiang Kai-shek, the rest met up again with Stalin to discuss other things. Mm-hmm. Gotcha. Yeah, I mean, the niceties have to be observed, if you will. <laughs> Apparently so. Yeah. So then China takes control in 1945 after the surrender of, J- of Japan, and uh, one of Chiang Kai-shek's guys, Chen Yi, was sent by Chiang Kai-shek and Douglas MacArthur to be the chief executive and garrison commander of Taiwan province. Yep, that's correct. Uh, he was there on behalf of the Allied powers to accept the surrender of Japan, and then he, he didn't... <laughs> He didn't really do a great job. I, reading up on Chen Yi and the years that he was running the place, 
he seems to have been fairly brutal and it resulted in riots and his eventual removal. You, you want to give us a, sort of a high level on the Chen Yi story? Uh, I can. Uh, the first thing I'd like to start with is just mentioning something about Chinese names. Now, mm-hmm. I don't know if you've gone through this yet. I don't know how much your listeners know. But in Chinese, the family name always comes first. So you wouldn't mm-hmm. have someone called John Smith. You would have Smith John. Mm-hmm. So mm-hmm. with Chen Yi, Chen is the family name. Mm-hmm. And, of course, Chinese doesn't have an alphabet. They have characters. And each character has its own sound and its own meaning. And usually two characters together form a noun or a verb. And then Mm -hmm. you can sort of split them as you want. So, for example, the word for night is year one, and the the word for market is shi qiang. But if you take the year from night and the shi from market and put together, ye shi, that's night market. So they sort of chop and change their words to create new meanings. Mm Mm-hmm. Ah. The problem is when a new concept comes into a language, you either have to root around for words with the right meaning and create a new combination, or you have to translate things phonetically. So, for example, England is called Ingwa. Gwa is country. But Ing has nothing to do with England. It just sounds like England. Ing actually means brave. So Ingwa is like brave country. Hmm. Oh. Even though they have, don't have any braves there or anything like that, whole, whole bunch of British <laughs> listeners just came in their pants when you said that. But yeah, keep going. <laughs> well, talking about coming, um, take the name Benedict Cumberbatch. <laughs> nice transition. Transcribing this into Chinese, it comes out as <laughs> Benedict Cumberbatch. So you have eight character long name, whereas oh names are traditionally two or three characters long, usually three, like hmm. Chiang Kai Shek. The other issue is that there are only 100 surnames in Chinese. Oh, my God. Which means you could read a huge history and you see the same name coming up again. And, oh, there's so many Chens, there's so many Lees, there's so many Shengs, there's so many whoever. Right. And unlike America, where it's like, oh, there's the Roosevelt's again. Oh, there's the Clintons again. There's the Trumps again. There's the Bushes again. Right. Most of the time, it's not the same family. Mm Mm-hmm. Because there'll be millions of people out there with the same name as you who are not related in any way. Why? Okay, so why mm. there are only 100 surnames? Because to have a new surname, you'd have to invent a new character. Oh. And they only have limited characters, and certain ones were used as family names. It all goes back to the first emperor of China, uh, Qing Shi Huangdi. Right. And at the time, there were lots of different written forms of Chinese. And he said, this is absolute nonsense, and he standardized right. it. He said, okay, there's one written thing, and this will be sent out so that everyone in the empire uses this one written right. form. Okay. But because the empire was so big, he couldn't lock down in their minds grammar or pronunciation. So there's wow. some slight grammar differences, and pronunciation can vary wildly, hmm. which is why in Hong Kong they have Cantonese from the Canton region, which is – a very different pronunciation to Mandarin, but it was all written the same. Oh. So, I mean, there's a place in Hong Kong called Kowloon. Uh, I think it's uh, in, 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 sorry, in Mandarin, it's called Zhou Long. Kao and Zhou are the same, and Loon and Long are the same, and it means nine dragons because mm. it's where nine different river tributaries 
open up in the, the same bay. Wow. Okay. So this means all of the empire could write to each other, even if they couldn't quite speak to mm-hmm. each other. But in there was oh. set down which characters they had, and only a hundred of them or so were, were names, uh, family names. Mm-hmm. And then, of course, we have the added problem of writing the names in English. Mm. Yeah. Because we have two English writing systems that phonetically translate. One is the Wade-Giles system, mm-hmm. started by a guy called Wade, finished by a guy called Giles. I forget the name of the second system. It's the, um, people just call it uh, pinning. It's yes. something pinning. Pinning, yeah. And I think they've actually sort of become slightly politicized, like people in one political faction prefer one spelling to the other. And which, but mm. I think some of this also catered more to European styles because a D sound, a D, in one style is written with a D, and as one is written with a T. And what's the and a J sound could be written with a J or a K. It's confusing. What's the what's right. the main dialect in Taiwan? The main dialect by far is Mandarin Chinese, right? Mm-hmm. And then the second most popular is what's called Taiwanese, but could also be called Taiwanese Hokkien. And it's as technically it originally came from China as well, from one of the subgroups of the Han people, the Hokla. Mm. And that's spoken as the second main language. But then if you go to the indigenous people, they've got a, another 15 or so languages mm. that they use, mm. but they're only spoken in small communities. Mm. Uh, could and then I, English is on the yeah. rise, but it's not an official language. Right. I, I wanted to ask real quick, um, before you go into kind of describing the first governor, the, the KMT governor yeah. of uh, Taiwan, could you give us an idea, um, you know, just high level, of what Taiwan was like when the uh, the Japanese controlled it for 50 years? Because, yes, they made people learn Japanese. Everything was about serving the, uh, the dominant power. I get that. But they also brought in industry uh, to Taiwan. Again, it was self-serving, but there were um, – new technologies, jobs created, um, things like that. But I'm sure the Japanese were harsh on them as well. But I get the sense that the Japanese were, you know, were thinking long-term and trying to bring these people into the Japanese fold. Whereas the, when the KMT get in charge, it's pretty all, pretty much all about not losing control. And so they, there's some pretty harsh measures. Uh, but if you had any insights or any stories about Japanese, go ahead. Sorry. Yeah. There, there are a lot of different sides to this. Um, sure. And as someone who comes from a post-colonial country, I have to say that as terrible as colonialism is, mm-hmm. not everything is bad. Right. Like wherever the English invaded, yeah, they were horrible and they you know, made the best trade deals and got all the resources out of the country, mm-hmm. but they did set up education in those countries. Right. So there were some positives, even though there are lots of negatives. Mm-hmm. Same with Taiwan. Um, the Japanese, I think, were quite brutal at the start just to enforce their law and order. Right. But after that, they they ran it as a police state. But it wasn't a brutal thing. It, it's not like what you'd expect from 1984. Right. I mean, obviously, there were, there were, you know, if some police decided to beat you up, there wasn't much you could do about it because they're the government. Mm-hmm. But it didn't seem to happen that much. Right. At least depending on who you were, of course. The, the Japanese decided, 
Taiwan is at the end of a string of islands called the Ryukyu Islands, which belong to Japan. Mm-hmm. So they wanted to firmly settle their claim on the island. So they did everything they could to promote um, a Japanese way of life and Japanese society. Uh, at that stage, Japanese was the main language of the island, mm-hmm. or at least it was in terms of all business and teaching and trading. Right. Uh, in fact, to this day, some of the elder generations, and I'm talking about great-grandparents now, the few who are left, mm-hmm. don't speak Mandarin. They only speak Chinese, uh, Japanese. Wow. Are they, do but they get the, frowned at? I have to ask, when they speak Japanese, is, is everybody okay with it? Is it just accepted because that's what they learned when they were kids? I'm just I, wondering how sensitive this people stage, are. Yeah. yeah, I think they – sorry, cut you off there. Yes, um, I think at this stage that it's just sort of accepted. Okay. But as a language studied at school, Japanese is not very popular anymore. Right. Whereas it used to be very popular, and it's – it's now starting to gain popularity again as, hey, there's a fun language to learn, <laughs> as opposed to, oh, that's the language of the oppressors. We don't want to right. learn that. Right. It's starting to just be seen as another language now. That's good. Okay. Right. Yes. The, the Japanese, they did strange things with the indigenous people. Mm-hmm. Some of them, they actually managed to recruit and get to join their armies. And other ones, it seems like they were trying to either exterminate them or exterminate their culture to try and incorporate them in the new Japanese culture they were developing on Taiwan. Mm. And yet they, they, they wanted to turn Taiwan into an industrial hub. I mean, one of the reason, one of the reasons Japan likes to conquer other places historically is because of a lack of resources on their own islands. So if they could branch out and mm. especially during world war two, take as much as possible it gives them the resources they need to continue developing. Right. So they wanted to build up the infrastructure and the industry on Taiwan to turn it into an industrial hub, and especially getting towards World War II, turning it into a military industrial hub. Hmm. Now, Taiwan has gold, which the Japanese were the first to start mining. It has lots of copper all over the island, which they were mining as well. And it has large amounts of coal, which at the time was what was needed for industrialization. Right. Now, they also have a huge supply of marble and cement, although I don't know how much of that was mined during the Japanese time. I have to look right. that up, I think. Well, during a war, I don't know how much marble yeah, so you need. Ran... So, yeah. Sorry, go ahead. <laughs> Probably not that much, but apparently they have one of the biggest, if not the biggest, deposit of marble in the world. It's one of their biggest exports at the moment, or it's rapidly becoming one of their biggest exports. Right. Which is not something you think about when you think of Taiwan. You don't naturally associate it with marble. Can we move on to Chen Yi now? Yes, yes, sorry. We can move on to Chen Yi. So Chen Yi, like Chiang Kai-shek, were both born in Zhejiang province. Um, Not in the same town, but in, in that same province. And... It seems somewhere around the history, I mean, I'll I'll find the exact dates. They both spent time in Shanghai and both became incorporated or connected to the triads there, particularly to the Green Gang. And this plays an important role later on. Uh, He actually studied in Japan. He was there at a military academy for seven years and then again at a military university for a further three years. Um, That was in 1917. And then you know, after that, he became involved in Shanghai and the triads connect, 
probably that's where he met Chiang Kai-shek because he was also there involved with those triads. Right. And he became the governor of Zhejiang province in October 1925. Uh, and then two years after that, well, they started the their war with the communists, the communists in the Kuomintang. Oh, yeah, there's another thing with language. The right. KMT, the K should be pronounced as a G and the T as a D. So the KMT is the Kuomintang. Mm. Again, land, mm. it, it's confusing I'll, as all hell. I'll try to remember that, but no promises. <laughs> <laughs> it, it's fine. It, if you haven't studied it, you don't expect the letters oh. to be pronounced differently. Good. We have a, we have a basic rule anyway, on um, our shows, James, that we pronounce things the right way and <laughs> everyone else <laughs> everyone else can get fucked, basically. Oh, yeah. That sounds right, yeah. actually. Yeah, that sounds right. Yeah. Well, during the War of the Communists, Chen Yi uh, used his connections and Chiang Kai-shek's with the triads in the late 1920s to basically just take Shanghai unopposed. Mm. He got hold of his buddies and he's like, we need Shanghai. And they're like, great. And he just marched his army in and there was no opposition. Right. So, yeah, a wow. bit of a dicey background to this guy. Yeah. I'm guessing the, the experiences that he had as a younger person before he gets to be governor or whatever the proper term is of, uh, of Taiwan. I mean, he, he saw a lot of things and he had to be pretty hard, you know, military mindset, whatever. And so I guess I'm not too surprised that he's going to come into Taiwan and go, okay, we need this place up and running for Chiang Kai-shek. We need to be efficient. And whatever that takes is what we're going to do. End of story. Cause you just get the sense that he was just cracking skulls, if need be, because, you know, he had a mission to accomplish for Chiang Kai-shek. Mm. And true, and he, it does come across like that. Yeah. But there's also some indication that maybe he wasn't as bad, mm. but the people under him were more corrupt. Oh. But mm. again, that's also open to interpretation. So, I mean, we'll, we'll get there. Sure. Yeah, so, in, in fact, in 1935, when Japan was celebrating 50, uh, 40 years of occupying Taiwan, but they didn't call it that. They called it the Exposition to Commemorate the 40th Anniversary of the Beginning of Administration in Taiwan. I love marketing. They actually invited, yeah. they actually invited Chen Yi to come join them and take part in the celebrations. Right. And then a few years later, you know, when they were at war with each other and they were about to invade the city where he was living, they sent him a message ahead saying, look, we're about to invade. Uh, get your family and get out. Oh, good guys. Thank you. So he was... <laughs> And then, of course, he didn't warn anyone. He just got all of his assets and his family and, and buggered off. Was that wrong? Should and he have the, told somebody, maybe? Yeah, he was – I guess the word would be Japanophile. He, uh, he loved J Japanese and their cultures. Gotcha. Of course, he wasn't above kicking them out of Taiwan and taking over. Mm -hmm. And he'd also been governor of Fujian province for eight years. And the majority of the Chinese settlers who had moved to Taiwan were from there. So they thought, well, he's been there and he's familiar with the Japanese and their way of ruling things. So he would be the ideal first governor when we take over Taiwan. All right. That was part one of our interview with James Schoen on the history of Taiwan. Um, he'll be back a couple more times because we really go into detail on the uh, important years after World War II in Taiwan. Uh, please make sure you check out his podcast, TaiwanThroughTime.com. Curtain head.
has descended across the continent.